So basically, I turned up at this recording studio to, to do the radio, and I was due to ring the producer, who was called Nick, who was called Nick, to say, I'm here, can you let me in so I can park outside? Except I rang the wrong Nick. <laughs> <laughs> this very lovely, very lovely actor friend called Nick picked up the phone and said, hello. And I said, hi, I'm here, I, I'm at the doors, can you let me in? And he was like, What? <laughs> I told him at the doors you said to ring to let you in the garage doors he went oh I, I, I'm terribly confused I, I, I wish I could help that's <laughs> <laughs> very sweet and I the wrong and he was so sweet because he was actually trying to help me from there I was in a car the other side of London and he wasn't <laughs> I, I, I can't rival that but I do have a habit of sending so one of the people I file to most often, file copy to most often, is Sarah Donaldson, who works for The Observer, who's yeah. the art editor on The Observer. And um, obviously she calls Sarah. So quite often I get a phone call from her going, so I haven't got your copy. And I'll say, and then I look and I filed it to myself. <laughs> just, just kind of sort of such a tragic mistake to be making. But anyhow. It'd be good if you then responded when, gosh, that's rather good. I yes. You'll love your turn of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of cutting out the middle person altogether. <laughs> she is lovely. Here we are on this week's instalment of As the Actress Said to the Critic. I am the critic, Sarah Crompton. And I'm the actress, Nancy Carroll. And we thought this week we might talk about First Nights because I have been reading um, Dominic Dromgall's um, new book, um, Astonish Me, First Nights That Changed the World, which is just coming out in time for Christmas. It's a brilliant book and I will talk about it, some of the examples in a bit. But it also got me thinking about First Nights and what strange, strange things they are. Yeah. And how as a critic sometimes you feel part of something that isn't entirely for you. It's yeah. kind of, there's quite a kind of atmosphere of them. What are the rituals of First Night? Are there things that actors always do? Yeah, I mean, you know, and some people love it and relish it. And it's a fantastic distraction from the fact that it is a sort of an oddity in a way that we sort of put ourselves in front of an audience that, you know, for the most part are completely full of love and willing it to work. You know. They're sort of friends and yeah, but also family. the press. You know, yeah. press are excited friend, yeah. about things and yeah, yeah. That's but there's true. a build-up, yeah. and so the nature of the atmosphere isn't one that you would normally expect if you were in a sort of run. You right. know, and if you've done a number of previews and if you, you know, if you're set to do a six-month run or whatever. But it, there is this emphasis on the one night. I mean, here, obviously, in America, they tend to do. A lot more, don't they? they? Yeah, they do. They do this thing of inviting the press into previews and then having a first night gala night. And we, I've yeah. talked about that before, and I, yeah. I do think it's um, uh, a really interesting thing and uh, actually better for yeah. the reviewer. It's it's the other thing I've been reading about first nights is that you and I separately both went to see uh, Vinay Patel's adaptation yeah, yeah. of. Um, Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. Set on a spaceship. Set on a spaceship. Really clever idea. Really clever. In the, uh, the yard uh, near uh, Hackney Wick. Near Hackney Wick. And a full Southeast Asian cast. Yeah. And which made sort of all the talk of ancestors and keeping traditions alive and so on, particularly 
resonant, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, it was a really, really intriguing production. I'm very, very glad to have seen it. Yeah. But he wrote, running up to it, he wrote the most brilliant blog about all the rehearsal process and about adapting Chekhov and about all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. And then he wrote a sort of PS saying that the first night, which was when the press were invited in, it wasn't when I saw it, I went, I went later, but was possibly the night that was the worst of any performance they'd given during previews. Yeah. So that everything slightly went wrong technically and that somehow nobody settled and yeah. that it just didn't click in the way it had been doing. And he felt, and he, he just wrote incredibly honestly about how he felt about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, there is a, it is a weird thing. There is this pressure that directors and writers and anybody puts on themselves for it to be this definitive moment or a definitive night or a, you know and and you know and it's the same of a last night we had these things that we think should somehow represent the whole and that's not realistic because the minute you do that you take yourself out of the experience and the reality is that the best things happen when you're immersed and if you're looking at yourself from the outside going well that was shit it doesn't work <laughs> you know and but I was thinking about it and I've thought about it a lot this week since we we did the podcast with Sarah Hemming because I think the nature of criticism is so interesting but it actually belongs to a great culture of judgment, yeah. not in a derogatory sense, but, you know, the, our entire education system is based on judgment. Our yeah. entire, everything, yeah. Strictly Come Dancing, you know, yes, the great British bake-off. Even though we're talking about Victoria's sponges, everybody goes, oh, no, that one's better than that one, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Even though it's the same ingredients, you know, the nature of how big your sponge puffs up. Yeah. Is is very similar to how perfectly puffed one's performance is, and and the minutiae. I mean, that's the reality: is that we berate ourselves for not having achieved a certain moment, or the laugh was slightly bigger on this moment, or the silence was, you know, more extraordinary on another moment. But actually, the difference is so infinites infinitesimal, yeah. and actually. You can't control individual responses of any single member of an audience. Yeah. So something, you know, that you deem in your head to be catastrophically awful, somebody could have gone away having their life changed because they heard something that chimed in with where their head was at or reminded them of what a grandparent had said and 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 they go away having had a door open. Yeah. And yeah, in a way, it has nothing to do with the nature of the performance done. or the plate. Yeah. It's the chemical connection with a human being or an event or a, or a moment. And I think that's it, is that ultimately all art, like, you know, with Dominic says, it's you sort of just put it out into the ether and it has yeah. a, a planetary style explosion that may have a delayed reaction, like with Sarah Kane, who we were talking about with his book, yeah, that is, yeah. Men is mentioned in the book, you know. And as we said in last week's um, podcast, that sometimes critics will go back to something and go, oh, hang on, that's interesting. Yeah. Certain things by osmosis have changed in my reaction yeah. to it. Do, yeah, Dominic Trungle, being a theatre director, I think I do think it's a really good book. And he does sort of rather brilliant things, like he compares um, Beyonce's performances at uh, Coachella and yeah. also the, the Homecoming album to, to, to Hamlet uh, of essentially putting <laughs> the most private... Genius private thoughts yeah. into a public space which is kind of sounds ludicrous but 
actually is a brilliant, brilliant analogy. Yeah, yeah. And he covers a lot of ground. So he covers everything from Leonor, uh, Michelangelo unveiling David in Florence yeah. to Handel's Messiah to Monteverdi. The bits I like best, partly possibly because they chime with my interests, is is the bits on theatre. And certainly because he's a director, he, yeah. he writes so well about them. And one of the really good chapters, which we were talking about before we started recording, is about the first night of Sarah Kane's Blasted. And he was um, a friend of Kane. And I think... Um, I think the whole book, it would have to be said, has got a sense that he doesn't really rate critics. And he feels that um, The First Night of Blasted, which was a kind of scandal, really. Well, it's oh, the wrong word. It was made into a sensation for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he sort of is quite critical of the critics for that. And... Um, I've been thinking about that. I might come back to that yeah. on another. Uh, I, I don't. Th- I think it is. Uh, I saw Blasted much later. I think it is a genuinely shocking play, and I don't really know the truth of whether there was a sort of sense of everybody ganging up to say yeah. we're going to make a fuss about this and we're going to cause, uh, we're going to call for the royal court to use its, lose its funding and so on, which did indeed happen. And but how much that was concerted, I don't yeah, honestly yeah. know. But I think what's interesting is it also touches on the theme of another podcast, David Hez's remark about, you know, critics are very often wrong. Yeah. But yeah. critics are sometimes also right. So, um, you know, Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun. Yeah. Everybody on that first night. Yeah. Had a disastrous dress rehearsal, interestingly, which I didn't oh, know. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely yeah. disastrous Off in the dress. Way. Yeah. Off yep. in the, yeah. Um, and then on the first night, everybody recognised it as a work of genius that um, changed the form, that moved yeah, uh, the dial, and so it, it's it's fascinating. It makes you think about that whole thing. And one of the things it made me think about was, given how much tends to be riding on these things, yes, what pressure actors put on themselves with the rituals of a first night, because you do do all that stuff, don't you? Well, it is. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, and I think I've said this before that some actors ferociously mark the first preview as the first night, right? And whereas others are feel that the preview period is quite sacred and and that it isn't it isn't the proper public space it is still part of the rehearsal period and that's totally individualistic and and you know you have to respect all of that because people have their own processes and they're almost like they are ritualistic in that way it is a religious and you know you can compare it and um and i, I but in some ways it's you know, it's it, it, you know that the minute you're open, it's all bets are off, and we're yeah. sort of naked to that criticism and opinion. You know, not just the press, but family and friends, and you know, and 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 the public, and whether people come or they don't come, yeah. and whether that word of mouth will or won't have its own momentum, which is another interesting thing. The way that zeitgeist catches, you know, things. cats yeah. catches fire. Not cats. Cats have nothing to do with it. But the but, but um. <laughs> I find it a great help. Right. And as a massive oversharer and love bomber, I I I I love the excuse <laughs> to tell everybody how much I love them. And I do genuinely because I think there is something so extraordinary about being on stage with yeah. people. There's such trust and and it, and you go through something together. It's like a sort of odd potholing experience you know that you put yourself in knowing that you're going to be terrified but at the end of it you might with the wind behind you create something absolutely glorious that that has its own 
meaning beyond any individual. It's a collaborative collective Victoria Sponge, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, <laughs> yes. and 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 that basically the ritual is marking that yeah. it's the sort of it's it's Mark Rylance banging the drums, summoning the gods. It's the National Theatre banging of the windows on the quad that we've done. Oh, I yeah, and, mentioned before. Yes, you did, and but also Ralph Richardson used to set off a, a, a rocket from the roof, didn't he? Which is glorious. Love that it's, idea. it's an analogy, and it's an actual literal thing, you know, yeah. and. and it is nuts that yeah. we go through this thing. You know, you go through the process of becoming an actor, wanting to get a job, getting a job, beginning a rehearsal process, you know, trying to put together something that, that you know, exemplifies the coming together of that collaborative group. Yeah. You preview, you you know, that theatre struggles, puts its, you know, money where its mouth is, it gathers its production yeah. team. The collective effort is like yeah, a massive huge, yeah. pilgrimage across America, yeah. ultimately. And then you get there, you do it, you go, okay, this is it, we're ready, we're ready, guys, come on, let's go, let's go. And then everybody is, and then, and then you just wait to see if people yeah. like it. What do Mark Rylands used to do? Was that at the Globe? That he... Well, no, no, I was just thinking in Jerusalem, the banging oh, yeah, of the drums, yeah, the, the summoning. The, the, yeah, sort of... yeah, summoning. Ah, yes. It, which, again, it has the same thing. Yeah. It's it's a visceral yeah. um, sound that plays into a heartbeat rather than a cerebral thought. Yeah, it makes me think in Russia, um, I heard this story, which I don't, well, actually, I don't doubt it's true that um, dancers on their debuts, and yeah. actually on most performances, so it's slightly off the subject of uh, first nights, but they're, um, they're judged on the number of flowers they get. Ah. And if you don't have enough fans and you don't get enough flowers, yes, it's yes. kind of noticed. Oh. So that you, you need to make sure. So it's not just sending out the first night notes to everybody saying, you know, come in. It's also saying to all your friends, please buy me some flowers. Here's the florist. Yes, yes, yes. And then you you kind of vanish behind the flowers. And, and, it, and it really is a judgment. And of course, that kind of, um, I know the story because somebody who was kind of an unassuming sort of Brit guest yes. went to, um, Russia and danced and you know got one lovely bouquet yes. and everyone oh dear that was a disaster oh, no. <laughs> because they misread <laughs> they misread the ritual and I think that that's an interesting thing about how the ritual um, develops the other thing that, that, that I took away from uh, Dominic's book is that Astonish Me of course comes from um, Jean Cocteau um, so Diaghiev said to um Jean Cocteau, Etonne moi, and, you know, surprise me, give yeah, me something yeah, that yeah. I haven't seen before. And that was Diaghiev's whole vision with Belarus. That's how yes. he changed dance with Belarus. And I've been reading quite a lot one way or another. There have been, I'll do some plugging here. There's been some three very, very good yeah. um, dance books out this year. Uh, one about Nijinska by Lynn Garofola, which is really the first biography of Nijinska's sister, yes. who was a hugely significant figure in her own right. One by Rupert Christiansen, which is about the sort of ballet russe and which is a really good one volume history of that. And then um, they come up again in Dominic's book. And what I like and what you remember is that Diaghiev really, the riot on the night of the, uh, the, the opening night of the Rite of Spring is yeah. the most famous first yes, night, yes. 1913, because there was a riot and yeah. because, you know, the dancers couldn't hear the music because people were shouting so oh loudly across the auditorium at one another. But 
What Dominic argues is that so much of that actually was set up by Diagib. He knew that oh, wow. um, that that it wasn't a bad idea to have yeah. sort of combustible auditorium with people who were very in favour of uh, Stravinsky and people who were already against. So there's yes. there's a certain amount of stage management in it, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because most first nights, obviously, that so the rituals are creating that kind of. Um, frame, I suppose, for yes. something astonishing to happen. Well, it isn't. It, it, you know, some people resist the ritual for the reason that they want it to be normal. They want an audience to have a, a feeling of, that what they're watching will be the same as people might watch in, you know, three weeks' time, two months' time. And I know actors who resist ritual because if something then goes wrong, yeah. it would unnecessarily set off the fear of a curse in your head which will mess you up because you need to be relaxed and you can you know the difference between sort of sanity and insanity in those moments for want of a better term is wafer thin you yeah. know you can you can mess yourself up so easily and yeah. I mean I've done it I've had stage fright before and I've had you know had one show I did I got a stutter on a particular line gosh in a way that was completely debilitating that, that and I've never had it before and it was a form of stage fright because my mouth just stopped working and then for about two weeks after every night I would come to the same point and and I would literally sort of have a hot flush because I, I was getting closer and closer Gosh. and then eventually I, I had to just go really really slowly and retrain myself and so that headspace yeah the sort of fight or flight mechanism you know, the, I think Olivier said that, you know, it's always best when the head is, no, the, the heart is warm, but the head is cool. And I sometimes when I'm panicking in the wings, particularly on first nights, I, I have that thing of, you know, the heart is the heart is warm, the head is cool, the heart is warm and the head is cool. Yeah. I'm sort of you know, sweating <laughs> in a corner. Oh, I can't do it. You know, but it is, you have, you have, your head is a, a huge part in that sort of, delve into the unknown, yeah. the chaos of whatever the actual live performance is. Yeah. And and I think, you know, when you have an audience full of actors, which you often do on press nights, you have the press and you have actors and you have, you know, affiliated or not with the theatre and friends of the performers on stage, and it is an odd thing. And sometimes that's extraordinary in as much as it's so supportive and, you know, the, the laughs are twice as big or yeah. whatever. I can remember doing... A boy check at the old Vic, and I had to do this sex scene with the very brilliant um, Ben Bat, and and it was quite extreme. The language was rather blue, but we got an ovation—not an ovation, but a massive <laughs> applause afterwards, which we never got again. And I do feel that it was all the actors in the audience going, "Thank God, that God. wasn't me." <laughs> Never, yeah, no, never would I have allowed myself. Yeah, the atmosphere is is strange because there is that sense of anticipation, and there are and the audience is definitely different. Yeah. The other the other week, um, I very much liked uh, Blues for an Alabama Sky, oh, directed yeah. by Lynette um, Linton at the National, and because um, the leading actress Samira Wiley had bronchitis, right. the press night got postponed at. Very last minute. I mean, they they called it off on the day, which must oh, have been gosh. a huge decision for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I sort of grumped around in, in, in the way I do. In fact, it was five because I just watched some football instead. Um, <laughs> but that meant that they had to rearrange it for right. um, the, f- the, the next week. And right. so on a night where they'd sold the house and where they wouldn't necessarily be expecting it to be a first night. And, and one of the wonderful consequences of that was that you were by and large watching it with an audience who'd simply chosen to go along because they liked the sound yeah, of the play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, obviously a block of house seats that were full of friends and family and press. Yeah. But most people had just gone because they were interested in the play. Yeah. And it had, I, I don't know if it would have been the same on a normal press night. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences I've had in a theatre. I don't think it's a great play, but I do think it's a great production. And what happened was that everybody really lent into it. Yeah, there was a sense yeah. of engagement with it. It was like watching a TV sitcom, but in the theatre and yes, live. Yes. So that everybody had invested in the characters yeah. in in a way I haven't felt. And I gather from people I know who have been later that that is happening all the time. Yes. And I did feel that happen because it wasn't a press night audience. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I think that's, you know, one of the... It's, it's just unpredictable. That's the nature of it. And But the truth is it's unpredictable every night. Yeah. But because... Everybody comes with one a, night with that sort of pedestal like expectation. Yeah. It's unrealistic. But what's the alternative? The alternative is you either do the you use the American model and you have it over a period of time, or you just call it and we say, Look guys, this is weird. Yeah. But if we want, you know, reviews, we want to put it out there, we need to celebrate, we need to open our doors. There will always be a moment where the doors are no longer shut, yeah. and 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 that's when the light yeah. floods in, and you just. And I suppose it's also it has the advantage of working towards a point of judgment. So one of the other interesting stories that Dominic Dromgore tells in the book is about the first night of um, Death of a Salesman with oh, Lee J. Yeah. Cobb, and um, everybody thought the play was extraordinary when they read it, and and you know Arthur Miller was already sort of among people in the know, being acclaimed as kind yeah. of the writer to watch. Um, but in rehearsal. It just didn't seem to be working, and Lee Jacob just didn't seem to be very present, and didn't, yeah. um, and everyone was disappointed, you know, because he was a great and famous actor, and yeah. and they felt it was a magnificent play, and Kazan, who was Elia Kazan, who was directing it, was beginning to get worried, and then what what the book describes is that as he worked his way towards the opening night, yeah. He kind of ratchets up the process and suddenly yeah. becomes, you know, Willie Loman and and gives one of the kind of most famous performances on a first night. Yeah, yeah. Um in in in, in terms of theatre history. And so that's and that's interesting because that's about somebody kind of pacing themselves, isn't it? As yeah. well as getting of finding the part just at the moment when he can burst into it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. I remember years ago hearing um, Bryn Turville talk about when he first hit the, the sort of the stage, as it were. And I think it was his Desert Island disc talking about, you know, that his sort of star shone brightly quite quickly. And as a young opera singer with... Is he a, t- is he a tenor? I think he's a tenor. Uh, he's no. A, um, no, he's a baritone. Baritone, Baritone, sorry. yeah. But, you know, that his uh, uh, a sort of mentor said to him, 
you are going to be offered everything under the sun now because everyone's got terribly excited. My advice to you is earn the right. And I think as as a metaphor for life, and particularly in performance, and particularly given the nature of parts and what we bring to them at certain stages of our lives and life experience and age and, you know, whatever. Earning the right, I love as a as an idea. Yeah. And that if actors are quite zen about that, you know, that rather than, you know, the, the, totally present and totally have earned the right to fill that part, yeah. to bring everything to that role, there is a magic yeah. There's an extraordinary magic. And I think, you know, even in plays that are, as we've talked about, you know, revisited time and time again, if you get a particular actor in a particular part and there is a sort of crossing of the streams in that way, that is that something lights up and those words mean yeah. something else. And I and and it, it and meaning is an interesting thing. I was you know, in terms of performance uh versus criticism, you know, and what audiences take from things mm. and wh- where does the meaning exist is it is it in the world is it in the story is it in the life experience of the individual critic or actor or whatever i mean the meaning is sort of transient yeah and, sort and of it, well yeah grabs. and it's interesting i mean i like and i like the end story of cobb because i thought it is interesting that idea of an actor sort of claiming their run at something yeah yeah because dancers do that dancers very much in preparing for one of those big parts they're trying to time their physicality and their grasp of the psychology yeah. of the part and everything so that they almost literally kind of burst onto the stage yes and and they've just got everything calibrated yeah to the 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 perfect moment. Yeah. And and, and I'm, I was interested that, you know, an actor would be doing the same thing. And actually, I do remember there was, I think there was a story around the rehearsal of The Habit of Art where Nick Heitner talks about the same thing, of the way that... Um, I think it was Alec Jennings and Richard Griffiths kind of limbering up almost through the rehearsal period yeah, to kind yeah. of break... Um, uh, out. Have you got a particularly memorable first night where you really feel, you know, like you hit, you know, you hit? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a couple where where you come away and you uh, and you think, I I can't believe I got away with that. <laughs> That's slightly different. <laughs> That's different. I mean, I always tend to. I mean, this is a big giveaway. I I always tend to take two frocks. Right. And one is. If I want to hide into, you know, disappear into the wallpaper, yeah. And one is if I, I don't want to disappear into the wallpaper. I'm quite happy to go party, um, and and be visible in that so, way. So, so when have you put on the party frock? When have you felt yes? I, you know, that, I suppose. I've done it. Let me think. Gosh, well, the first time, I really felt that actually, and I, I don't mean in any way for this to sound like I was blowing my own trumpet because I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think it was just events. When I did uh, played the Chevalier in Mario Vos the Full Servant in what was the Cottesloe, uh, directed by uh, Jonathan Kent and had been ad- adapted by Martin Crimp, and I had taken over uh, mid-rehearsal and it was one of those parts, it was the first time... Uh, in my working life that I had thought, Christ, I I actually don't have the muscles to do this. I actually don't. And yeah. and I've hit a wall. And and the, and and through the nature of the rehearsal and the actual inevitability of actually having to do it, I found 
other muscles. Yeah. And um and the first night was that realization of oh, oh, oh well maybe I can maybe I did yeah. have yeah. the muscles after all because the you know the nature of it I can't you know we was um, it was, it's such an interesting play and I think is very similar to Twelfth Night in lots of ways. And Charlotte Rampling was, uh, you know, our star and lots of brilliant actors. David Collings, Adrian, Char- uh, Adrian Scarborough, um, Anthony Calf. You know, it, it was just glorious. It was, a, it was a lovely little play and it was a beautiful set. And But we didn't know quite what the beast was. Yeah. And, but the, that night... Um, I thought I, there was there was something around the way that people spoke to me. They were like, "Ooh, I didn't know you could do that." It was coming out yeah. into the auditorium, and um, not into the you know into the party, and people going, "Oh, oh!" And you know, but equally, I've had experiences where I I I do want to just hide <laughs> in the corner and go, "Oh, that was rubbish." Sorry, but then then I'm sure you were brilliant the next time. I mean, I do think. I mean, that's the other thing that made me. Um, think about the book. I mean, the kind of that reading it, the, you know, the exposing nature of it, and and that as as you say that the you know the really thin line yeah. between um, uh, being astonished and being excited and feeling that something's gone brilliantly, and and a kind of sense of disappointment that it's just slightly missed and yeah. and but the best one actually I must we, I think we should finish but I'm just going to tell the story that's told here about Chekhov and the yeah. first night of the seagull which I knew sort of um had been a disaster right? I yes. knew that um, Chekhov sort of said he would never write theatre again after the the um the um seagull but he what I didn't know was that one reason it was sort of a complete disaster yeah the first time it was produced though it went on to find great success when Stanislavski did it a bit later yeah yeah um but was that he it was it was sort of presented as the warm-up act for the retirement for the benefit performance of a very famous comedian oh wow (laughs) so you got you know, a pl- and, and Chekhov wasn't really concentrating for some reason on that. Yes. So he didn't go to the rehearsals. He didn't really look. All the cast were just the same cast. Right. And so they weren't right for the sequel. They were all sort of doing the wrong part. And then, <laughs> and then Dominic has got this brilliant line about it was the, it was, it's you know, Two and a half hours of the seagull is an awful long time to wait for the theatrical equivalent of a (laughs) carry-on movie. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, just that. And then Chekhov just basically goes to bed with a blanket over his head and and refuses and gets a train back to the countryside. All his friends are sort of left to pick up the pieces. And I thought that was, you know, given how kind of wonderful Chekhov is and how he's enriched our culture and our yeah. lives and everything. It's kind of a really kind but of great say, cautionary I tale. Did, I did, sorry, I know we, we, I, there was just one story that came to my head just that, which is, I, I find so interesting and although it's about a, a painting, it is quite interesting in terms of how, where you put art and and how it's read and personal experience of that and that sometimes you know things things brew in the world and they 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 come at people you know on different timelines years and years ago i was studying art at leeds and and um paula rego donated a beautiful beautiful uh painting to the leeds city art gallery and griselda pollock who's a brilliant brilliant writer about feminist art history um 
was being was interviewing Paula Rago, which was televised and recorded for radio, you know, announcing this great uh, offering. Right. It's the most beautiful painting and it's uh, the artist in her studio and it's got all these amazing little sort of characters painted around the edge of the painting but ultimately there's a plinth that would normally have the life model on yeah. and the artist in her smock, or the painting smock. But on, on the plinth was a pile of uh, cabbages. And Griselda Pollock had, you know, in the build-up to this interview obviously was trying to uh, establish what it is that the cabbages could you know could mean what did they represent and why was it not a naked body and all this sort of stuff and so it was a big moment you know that she'd come and it they were going to intellectualize these slightly rotting vegetables yeah. and and um and forgive my uh, cod portuguese accent because i i absolutely worship Paul Rego. but so she was asked this question about the cabbages and and you know and then she said ah well um I did have a naked body there, but I decided I prefer cabbages, and uh, and I, so I, I painted out the naked body and I put cabbages. I think cabbages are sexy, and Griselda Pollock's <laughs> world just imploded yeah. because it was this really, and I think you know, and that's that's that that's the nature so of art, good. yeah, you know, and it's sort of existence in the world and how we intellectualize and look for meaning and and but actually often the intention is is, is pure and and it doesn't necessarily warrant yeah the words but we do that's our human yeah. response is to go oh god how interesting and it means this and yeah but actually that you know art has its own life force yeah. sometimes and affects people in a way that they can't necessarily yeah. articulate and yeah and I mean that's a subject for another podcast, but and, well, and refers back to Dominic's book really. About, yeah, yeah, we exactly. Wait, we wait. We wait to apply meaning. We wait, we wait to, to apply, apply meaning. And 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 that sometimes you know the Victoria Sponge slash art piece slash theatre you know dynamic new writing isn't necessarily met in the way that yeah. we want or expect because. We haven't. There isn't language around it. It's something else. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. And that is a really good moment Sorry. to end it. No, Pretty there is a really moment. And actually, so just to quote him finally, the last thing that he says is that most um, first nights and the the history of those first nights and the the history of the cabbages is is a collusion between um, the artist and the audience, and that the response is part of it. And then that conditions how you go on. So perfect yes. moment to end. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, we should just stop there because yeah. that's good. So I'm going to say um, it's goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. And goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. <laughs>